It is that time of year. I'm not sure if you re- remember this or it dawned on you, but it is that time of year, the time for the poinsettia challenge. You may take one of these poinsettias in our lovely tree. You may take it home. If you bring it back at Easter blooming, I'll talk about giving you a prize, but I won't. So take it home. The grand champion, I think, so far, it's a, it's a close race between Cheryl Bittner and Nancy Guy, who have brought back blooming poinsettias on the next Christmas, both of them. So uh, the same ones, not a different one. They didn't cheat. But uh, so uh, we are uh, grateful for Heather Hagee and Steve and the work that they did to uh, beautify the auditorium. Uh, but their work is done. And now if you want to take one of these poinsettias home, uh, that would be great. At the end of the service, don't do it now. Uh, Last week, I noticed a trend on social media. Uh, It was one meant to mark the end of the year, and uh, some of you probably saw it. Some of you participated in it. Um, Last week, as we were about to turn the calendar, people went on their Facebook posts or Twitter or uh, Instagram, and they made lists, lists of all the things that had happened to them over the last year, over the last 10 years as we're turning from the teens uh, to the 20s. Some of them posted 10-year pictures. Uh, They were celebratory lists. In the last 10 years, and they'd make a list, I graduated from high school, graduated from college, got married, had three children, started two careers, bought a home, moved four times. Frankly, I read those lists and I thought about my own list and I wondered what I did with all my time. This is a trend, I think, that's for people who are younger than I am or older than I am. There's a, there's a period of time between 15 and 25 or 20 and 30 in which your life changes dramatically. Same thing happens between 60 and 70 or 65 and 75. Uh, when the calendar changes, people begin to look backward and they look forward. What's going to be on your 10-year list at the end of the 20s? Or even at the end of this year, some of you, uh, before the calendar changes again, will get married, have a child, go uh, buy a house, go to college. There's a lot of decisions that you have to make. I wonder how you're going to make them. Uh, We, as followers of Christ, we want to make decisions that reflect our loyalty to Jesus Christ. That's our aim as Christian people. We sometimes describe it this way. We sometimes talk about doing or obeying or following the will of God. It's a biblical way to think and talk, to do the will of God. But I also think that the way that we sometimes, the way that we have traditionally talked about this, about following the will of God, has been well-intentioned talk but off target. Uh, Let me summarize how we sometimes talk about making important decisions. God, we say this to each other, God has a plan for your life. He, uh, you could call this his individual will for you, or some people, I'll, I'll refer to it several times, I think, as God's plan A. God has a plan A for your life, and God's plan A for your life includes who you're going to marry, the college you're going to attend, the degree you're going to pursue, the home you're going to buy, the car you're to drive, the career you're to pursue, the, the children you're to have. It's his plan A. It's God's best for you. And making decisions... Uh, Well, involves finding out what his plan A for you is. Sometimes it's hard to figure out. Oftentimes it's hard to figure out. So consecrate yourself to him. 
Get some good counsel. Follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Uh, read the signs that he has given you. Carefully study the scriptures and you will discover his plan A. You've got to be careful though because you don't want to miss God's plan A. You could marry the wrong person or take the wrong job or buy the wrong house. And if you do, well, you've missed God's plan A for your life. Here's a verse that applies to that. Sometimes we use this verse this way. Romans 12, 1 and 2. We all know this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then do those things. Then you will be able to test and approve and find what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice and then you'll know God's will. And if you don't know what his will is, if you don't know what decisions to make, maybe you're just not consecrated enough and you need to try harder to be more consecrated. Have you ever heard advice like that? Got to find the one, the path, the career, the college. Got to find God's plan A for your life. I'm going to spend the next three weeks making a case that there is a better way to think about making decisions that honor God. Uh, there's a lot to commend about the traditional way that we've talked about this. Um, it has been taught by good and godly men and women. It takes the Bible seriously. I, I want you to live a consecrated life too, but I don't think that this is what the Bible teaches about wise decision making. Instead of trying to find God's plan, God's elusive plan A, I think the Bible teaches us within the framework of his own worldview to make wise decisions. Here's a test case. Um, all these verses that I'm going to read are on the blue sheet. I'm going to read them either from the blue sheet or from uh, the, uh, my notes in front of me. Here's a test case that I want to show you about this. Uh, a very important decision that everybody has to make. Not everybody, but many people make. 1 Corinthians 7.39. Uh, this is a test case for what I'm going to be talking about the next few weeks. Look at the text. It's about how to make the decision about marriage. 1 Corinthians 7.39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies... She's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So here's a word to widows. It applies to widowers. It applies to single people too. Who should you marry? How should you make that decision? What should you do about marriage? Paul's A answer is don't, <laughs> right? In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. Hmm. Well, sometime we'll talk about the unique circumstances that were going on in Corinth at this time that would make Paul write that. We'll, we'll talk about that sometime. Let, let, let's go back in the verse and think, what kind of advice does Paul give? How do you make that decision? Of first importance, of most importance, the biblical requirement. He must belong to the Lord. That is, he must be a believer. Anyone you consider marriage, any potential marriage partner, must share your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians marry Christians. Uh, this is not about nationality. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about class. It's not anything like that. This is about your faith commitment, and the issue is loyalty. 
As a follower of Christ, the Bible commands you to love God supremely. And it is impossible, while loving God supremely, to ally yourself in the covenant of marriage to another person who doesn't share that loyalty. You can, at the same time, commit your eternal life to God and your earthly life to someone who doesn't share that eternal commitment. You don't have enough in common with them. If you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, what do you have in common with someone who doesn't love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? If you're contemplating marrying someone who doesn't share your faith, you are not as loyal to Jesus as you say you are. That's that's a very plain and direct statement. I don't know any other way to interpret what the Bible says about this. So, the biblical requirement. Any potential marriage partner must be a follower of Jesus. What next? What else? Paul, tell us. Paul says, marry anyone you want. Really? Uh, He's narrowed the pool of potential partners to believers. Now, from that pool, who do you marry? Marry anyone you want. Don't marry someone you don't want to marry. Okay, that's good advice. It's good advice. Marry whomever you wish. Paul doesn't say find the right one. Paul doesn't say find God's plan A. Find the one person that God selected for you. He says marry anyone you wish. So, you come to me for pastoral advice. Sit down in my office and you say, Pastor, there's this girl. Or, There's this guy. And my first question will be, is she a Christian? Yes, she is. Good. Question number two. Do you want to marry her? Yes. Okay, good talk. That's all we need to do. We're done. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Now, probably since you made the effort to meet with me, we're probably going to unpack those two things a little bit more. We're going to talk about how you know that this prospective mate is a believer. And I'd probably spend time talking to you about what a wise want to looks like. What, is, what does it mean to wisely want to marry someone? But here it is. When it comes to marriage, when it comes to college, when it comes to a career, when it comes to a home purchase or having a child, within the boundaries of the Bible, make a wise decision. That's the goal. Not figuring out the elusive plan A. That's where we're going. That's where we're going over the next uh, couple of weeks. Here's where we're going to get there. Today, I want to talk to you about how the Bible talks about God's will and what impact that has on wise decision-making. Then next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about uh, the decision-making process itself. How to make, how do we make wise decisions? And then third, uh, uh, two weeks from today, Lord willing, we're going to talk about the special case of calling. What are we talking about when the Bible talks about being called? Who's called and, and, and how do you know to answer the phone? Right. So um, calling is a couple weeks. Today, God's will. That's what we're going to talk about today. Or um, as I titled this talk, God's wills. God's wills. The Bible uses the term will to talk about two different aspects of God's nature. We're going to talk today about God's will of decree, and we're going to talk today about God's will of desire. I'm going to show you the differences between them and how the Bible uses the language of willing to talk about God's own nature. 
His will of decree focuses on sovereignty. His sovereignty, his will of decree. Some people call this his sovereign will, or here's the more fancy uh, theological term, his decorative will. Not decorative, like you pick out the curtains and the paint and the carpet. Decorate, not that. Decorative, uh, decretive. Uh, if you want to, D-E-C-R-E-T-I-V-E, decorative will, his will of decree. And it focuses on his sovereignty. His will of desire, on the other hand, focuses on his character, what he's like. Um, I'm going to show you examples of the language, uh, the Bible using that language in a few minutes. The Bible uses the term will in these two different ways, but they are not in contradiction to each other, as if God is of two minds. Uh, uh, This is a way of talking about how God interacts with his creatures and interacts with human history, the unfolding plan of history. You know what this is like. Already you know what this is like as I talk about it. Um, You have within you, you, yourself, you have multiple desires, um, one of my cousins is a, is a uh, an athletic trainer for a profession. He helps um, young athletes train well in the gym, lifting weights and um, doing aerobic exercises and things like that in order to help them become better performers on the athletic field. So he lifts, and he himself lifts weights a lot. He loves Loves this. He loves this. He's also very active on social media. Not too long ago, he posted something, uh, something like this. He said, I want to eat 12 tacos but I also want abs. What do you do? You want to eat 12 tacos, but you also want abs. We could talk about those desires. We could talk about how those desires reflect on his character and what those desires say about him. But it leads to the next question. You want to eat 12 tacos, but you also want abs. Everybody has abs, just some people's abs show and others don't. Okay, that's true. Um, I want to eat 12 tacos and I want abs that show. Okay, so, so what are you going to, in the midst of those desires, what are you going to decree? Which aspect of your character, how is your character going to be manifest in your decree, in, in what you do? You have a lot of desires, but you can't do all of them. Um, You only have 24 hours in a day. You can't accomplish everything in a day that you might like. Uh, Your desires are bigger than your day. So what what will you decree for yourself? Which of your desires will prevail? Which ones are of chief importance? You have desires and you have to make decrees. And the Bible talks this way about God too. Let's talk first about, about God's will of decree. God's will of decree. The focus of this, of course, the sovereignty of God. We could spend days and days and days uncovering everything that the Bible says about the sovereignty of God. We'll not. I'm going to touch on that subject and then think about how it affects decision making. First, we should realize that that God's uh, that that to the sovereignty or uh, that sovereignty rather is wrapped up in who God is. It is bound up in God's name. It bound up in God's personhood. He is the Lord. He is sovereign. Think with me about what God says in Genesis 1 when he creates human beings. He makes them in his image. Look at Genesis 1, uh, 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Okay, 
What does it mean to be made in the image of God? If you're going to make something in God's image in his likeness, what does that mean? Well, it means that you rule, that you have authority. Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and the text continues. This is who God is. He is the sovereign. He is the ruler. Uh, It is bound up in who he is. Lordship is central to who God is. God's authority, to borrow language from John Frame, is effective and universal. God rules the world effectively, that his, his sovereignty works And it's universal. It applies to everything. Here are four key passages, and then we're going to look at six key areas of God's sovereign rule in the Bible. We're going to read a lot of verses in the next few minutes, which is why this is so long. Well, we're going to read a lot of verses. So let's look. Four key passages. Lamentations 3, 37 to 38. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? God is sovereign over calamities. God is sovereign over good things. They come from Him. Then look at uh, Romans 8.28, this great precious and precious promise. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. The focus of this passage is on what God does for those who love Him. He works out All things for good. All things are within his purview and power to use for his own purposes. He works in all things. Now here's another all things verse. Actually, it's an everything verse, but close enough. Ephesians 1.11. In him... That's Jesus. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him, God, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. There is nothing that he does not work out. Finally, Romans 11, 33, 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. (laughs) How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Then he quotes, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All things are from him and through him and for him. Everything comes from him for his purposes. Can you name anything in all creation that is not from him? No. Now let me give you a list of six things that are under God's sovereign control. The first one we're going to start, it's easy to see. The other ones are going to get more difficult uh, to understand. But six things. First of all, the natural world. The natural world. Um, We sang about that this morning in the song Indescribable. It speaks about God's control over the natural world. Psalm 135, 6 and 7. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and he brings out the wind from his storehouses. Notice that God is active in this. He, he sends, he makes, uh, he, he does. He is active in this. He brings things about that please him. Second, God is sovereign in human history. Human history. He decrees what happens in human history. Here's one of three dozen verses I could read. Acts 17, 26, Paul's preaching. From one man, 
He, God, made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God decreed the existence, the movement, the lifespan of nations and peoples. I just started listening this week to a podcast called Migrant Nation. It's an overview of the history of the United States describing how people moved to the United States and how they moved across the United States. And this first episode they listened to was about the settling of western Pennsylvania. So it starts a while ago, back when Pittsburgh was a hamlet of 350 people. And, and, and they describe why did people move and how did they move and, 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 and Conestoga wagons and their usefulness or not usefulness over the Appalachian Mountains. And, and, and he talks, uh, describe uh, population statistics and census data and all these demographics that are going on and, and describing the movement of people. And then the Apostle Paul would come along and say, yeah, that's a very interesting, those are very helpful facts, but you know who, why the people moved? Because God moved them. He, 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 he made all the nations, he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their lands. So human history. Third, now we're starting to get controversial. God moves, he decrees the working out of individual human lives. Individual human lives. Look at Psalm 139.13-16. to 16. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So much of your life is bound up in who you are in your uh, genetic code, and God knit you together. He was actively involved in the formation of who you are, your height, your eye color, your gifts, your abilities. He laid out your days. Fourth, we can be even more specific. God is at work sovereignly decreeing human decisions. Human decisions. According to the Bible, human decisions come from the heart. And look what God does with hearts, even kings' hearts. Proverbs 21.1, In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. God is actively involved. He, he ordains the decisions that human beings make. Now here's where you should begin wondering about the relationship between God's sovereignty and human freedom. Are all of your decisions predetermined by God? Are you just a robot? Are you just a puppet in God's hands? We'll get to that in just a minute. Number five on the list, we have more questions. God's sovereign decree includes sin. It involves sin. God is sovereign and his sovereign plan includes sin. Without denying human responsibility, God's plan involves human sin. And the best example of this is the cross of Christ. If you're puzzling about this too much, if you try to deny God's sovereignty too much, you rob the cross of its power. Be careful. Start here. Start here and then work your way out. You'll be in good shape. But look at Acts 2.23. This is Peter preaching. This is what he says about the cross. This man, Jesus, 
was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Peter says that the death of Christ was brought about by wickedness. Wickedness. Without wickedness, Jesus' death would not have been necessary because it was for my wickedness. And it wouldn't have happened either. God's will of decree includes sin. It includes at least the wickedness of the sin of those who crucified Jesus. We see this uh, even more in Acts 4, 27 and 28. Look what it says. This is the the, uh, um, early church. They're praying. They're speaking to God. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together. When you get named in your prayers to God, you're in trouble. (laughs) These poor men. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They did, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. What Herod and Pilate and Judas and the people of Jerusalem did to Jesus was wicked. It was evil. It was a heinous conspiracy. And it had been decided beforehand by God. The will of decree, God's will of decree includes sin. Finally here, it includes faith and salvation. Faith and salvation. 2 Timothy 1.9 He has saved us. And called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Why does God save? Not because of anything we have done, but according to his own purposes. Not as an expression of his tyrannical, demonic control, but as an expression of his grace. You'll have questions about this. I have questions about this. I don't in any way intend that I can answer every question that we would have about the sovereignty of God. No one can. But can I, can I guide you? Can I encourage you? Place around the boundaries of, your, uh, of the, the questions that you still have what the Bible says about God's purposes and his grace. I don't understand everything, but I do know that what happens is an expression of the gracious plans of a gracious God. So God's will of decree, uh, it, it is His. It, it, it is universal and it's effective and it, and it The Bible specifically talks about all six of these areas in addition to blanket statements, all things, everything. Now that raises two questions, two problems that you should have about this. I just scratched the surface of the many affirmations in the Bible of the sovereignty of God, but here are two great questions. Number one, what about human freedom? And the second question is, what about evil? How, How can a good God ordain that evil would be part of his good plans? Good chefs don't deliberately burn their food. So how can a good God introduce such horrible things into his plans? Let's talk about freedom first. The Bible teaches this. It's a mystery. I don't understand it. The Bible teaches that God is both sovereign and human beings are responsible for the decisions that they make. And the Bible has no embarrassment about these things at all puts them together without any sort of embarrassment or without any sort of thought of contradiction. 
that God is sovereign and human beings are responsible. I, I could give you six or seven verses. Let me just give you a couple where this happens. Look at John 1, 12 and 13. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, that's Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. How do you become a child of God? John 1.12 says how you become a child of God. You must receive him. That is, you must believe But that birth, that new birth, is not the product of a human decision. It's God's decision. But you must believe. Why are you a Christian? Why are you a child of God? Because you received him and because you are born of God. Both are true. The Bible affirms them without question or without embarrassment. Or this is a a good one too. Acts 13 and then 14. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, Paul's preaching... When the Gentiles heard Paul's preaching, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. That is a pretty strong statement. Who believes? All who are appointed for eternal life believe. Appointed by whom? Appointed by God. All of them believe. Not one of them who has been appointed by God does not believe and not anybody who has not been appointed by God believes. Okay, but just a couple of verses. Look at this. Acts 14.1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. <laughs> that is great. In Acts, why do people believe the message about Jesus? They believe the message about Jesus because they were appointed to believe. In the book of Acts, Why do people believe the message about Jesus? They believe the message about Jesus because the apostles preached so effectively they had no choice but to believe. Both are true. The Bible has no problem affirming them within just a few sentences of each other. Sometimes within the same sentence the Bible affirms these things. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I can't explain it, but I'm not embarrassed about it because the Bible isn't embarrassed about it. God's sovereignty doesn't make anyone a robot or anybody a puppet. You know that. You know that from your own experience. You don't make the decisions that way. You have a great sense of of freedom. Now, uh, just think about this morning. Nobody got dressed this morning and thought to themselves, boy, I really want to wear blue pants. I really want to wear blue pants. It would work. Uh, they look good on me. I like blue pants. I'd really like to wear blue pants. Nobody, this is not your experience. You did not say, boy, I really want to wear blue pants, but I have to wear the black pants. I don't want to wear the black pants, but God has decreed that I have to wear black pants, so I'm going to have to wear black pants. That's not how you make decisions. Your mom might decree that you have to wear black pants. <laughs> you might be your mother's puppet, but, but you're, not, you're not God's. That's, that's not how you make decisions. You don't make decisions as a robot or a puppet. You do what you want. Uh, that's the way you experience life, and at the same time, God is at work. If you want to be technical about it, he probably gave you the genes that made you like blue pants, not the, not the denim. He gave you the genetics that make you like blue pants. Hmm. What about evil? What about evil? And evil is part of God's good plans. 
We human beings, we try out all kinds of words, we experiment with them to describe the relationship between God's decree and, God's, uh, and evil. We use verbs, ordains, authors, permits, causes, creates, foreordains, produces, stands behind. Authors and causes are probably too strong. Permit is too weak. Evil is part of God's plan. Remember the cross. Evil is part of God's plans to do his people good. For his glory, we sang this in that song, for God's glory and for the good of his people, God's plans incorporate evil. How should we think about this? Let me give you an illustration that might be useful. Um, This is an illustration. Wayne Grudem uses this. John Frame uses this. The illustration is over an author and his story. Are you familiar? Most of you are familiar. At least you've heard of it. uh, With uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, that great uh, sequence of books. And one of the heroes of that great story is a man by the name of Boromir. Boromir is a valiant warrior. He's a tragic figure in some ways. Boromir is killed in a battle at the beginning of the... Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Boromir is killed in a battle towards the beginning of the story. He's shot with uh, arrows by orcs. So here's the question. Who killed Boromir? The orcs? Yes. The orcs killed Boromir. They did it gladly uh, and purposefully with their own sense in the story that made sense. They had reasons to want to kill Boromir, and they did. But in another sense, Tolkien killed Boromir, right? Not the same way that the orcs did. Uh, We couldn't arrest Tolkien and put him on trial for killing Boromir like we could arrest the orcs. That would be quite the trial. But, But both the orcs and Tolkien killed Boromir in different ways. God created a world over which he is sovereign and as part of his sovereign control, he ordains that evil things happen for his own purposes. Now, how does God's will of decree affect how we make decisions? What's the the relationship between his sovereign control of the universe and what you decide? Two things. Number one, it should induce in you humility. Humility. I think that's a key word here, humility. Humility. This is a point that James makes at the end of his book. We read this a little bit ago. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Make plans, but make them humbly with the knowledge that God decrees what he will, and you don't have determining power in your life, God does. So God's will of decree introduces humility. Second, it should produce confidence. Confidence. You cannot miss on God's sovereign will. It will happen without a doubt. What he has decreed is certain. And God's certain decree comes from a God who is a good father who is trustworthy. When terrible things happen to you and terrible things will happen to you in life, they are not a sign that God has lost control. That's not the first question that followers of Jesus ask. Sometimes we do because we're tempted to. We don't ask, well, what happened to God's control? Did God lose control? That's not the question we ask. Instead, we ask, what is the good God going to bring out of this sorrow in my life? 
If you don't drink wine, you might not appreciate this analogy very much, but listen to what Samuel Rutherford said about suffering. Samuel Rutherford was a great uh, Scottish Puritan. He said, When I am in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. God keeps some of his most rich provisions in the cellar of affliction. We who are followers of Jesus know for certain God brings richness and blessing out of evil. We know that for certain because, again, we think of the cross. What happened to the Lord Jesus Christ in A.D. 33 was a terrible tragedy. It was a grievous evil. It was an absolute action, a conspiracy of wickedness. It was done out of envy and anger and laziness and blame-shifting and fear. It was treachery. It was treachery. And the Lord Jesus endured that injustice for us to spare us from the eternal consequences of our own evil that we might be spared God's justice for our own wickedness. It was an act of great grace for all who believe there is forgiveness and life. God brings it to us by His grace for His glory and our good. If you're a follower of Jesus, give thanks to God that His sovereign will decree, uh, includes evil because out of that evil, God produces great beauty. God's will of decree also helps us when we make foolish choices. You're going to mess up in your life. You're going to make foolish choices. It happens. But if you make a foolish choice, you have not ruined God's plans. You, you have not um, ruined God's plans for your life. You don't shelve yourself in, in God's plans. So we act with confidence under God's will of decree. Now, we don't have much time to talk about God's will of desire, and that's fine. I knew that that would happen. Um, I have two or three voices, verses to read. I have a point or two of application, and then we're going to finish. So God's will of desire is an expression of his character. It is not a statement of what will happen, but it's a statement of who God is, what God is like. 1 Timothy 2.4, God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What is God like? God is so compassionate. His compassion stretches as wide as the universe. He has not sovereignly ordained that all people will be saved. But this is the breadth of God's great love. Our God is a saving God. Look what Jesus said about Jerusalem in Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Here is something that God would do, but the people will not. Um, This cannot be a reference to God's um, uh, will of decree, because it's something that doesn't happen, but it's something that is an expression of his great character. Matthew 7.21, here's another example of God's will not being done. Can't be God's will of decree. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. There is a will of God that is not done by human beings. It's his will of desire that is not accomplished. This will of desire, his expression of his character, When the Bible uses the word will of God in this way, it's talking about his wisdom. It's about his goodness. 
And the will of desire, as it's expressed in Scripture, it's, it's explicit and it's very helpful when it comes to making wise decisions. So God's will of decree induces in us humility and induces in us confidence. God's will of desire, I think the key word boundaries, it sets up boundaries for us in which to make decisions. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.3, just as an example. It is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. It's God's will that you be sanctified, that you specifically in the area of sexual immorality. How does that translate to wise decisions? Don't make decisions that put you in positions that stimulate passionate lust. It is not wise to watch sexually explicit movies. Is it God's will for me to watch a sexually explicit movie? No. It is not wise to read sexually explicit books. It is not wise to be in a house alone with your boyfriend or girlfriend late at night. I suppose you could do that in righteousness, but it wouldn't be wise. There's no chapter or verse about that. But since you know what God's will is for your body... uh, Act wisely in light of what you know about God's will for your body. Since 1 Timothy 2.4 says that it's God's will for all people to be saved, do you know what you should do? Do you know what wise living looks like, good decisions look like? It, It looks like telling people how to be saved because God wants people to be saved. And it is wise to give them the good news. It's a wise decision. It's wise to tell people the gospel. That's what I think Romans 12.1 and 2 is talking about. As you grow as a follower of Jesus, you become increasingly skilled at recognizing and seizing opportunities to do what God says pleases him in his word. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices and you'll begin to see, oh, here's a way I can please God. Here's a way I can please God. Here's a way I can please God. This, these, these things that the Bible says please God, I'm going to pursue them more and more and more and more. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is talking about. What about God's plan A, his individual will for your life? Your individual choices are part of God's will of decree. It's incorporated into it, that's true. But the Bible doesn't instruct you to make decisions by trying to figure out God's will of decree. You can't miss God's will of decree. The Bible doesn't tell you how to figure out God's plan A either. It tells you, rather, within the boundaries of God's will of desire, make wise decisions. When it comes to marriage, for example, find a girl, find a guy who loves Jesus and who wants to marry you. And if you want to marry them, go for it. We're going to unpack that more next week. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come into your presence today and we are thankful to you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light for our path. Lord, um, help us. We want to. We want to live lives that honor you and that please you. And we confess that sometimes it's hard. It's hard making these big decisions. Um, We struggle. I pray that you would help us to think about these decisions well, biblically, truthfully. Um, Lord, even as we're thankful for our brothers and sisters in the church who have taught us about God's your plan A, even as we think about them, we're, we're in pursuit of a better way. So help us, help us.
Lord, um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, your word tells us. So we again affirm our reverence for you and ask you that you would direct us along the proper path by your word for your glory and for our good. You who are the sovereign one. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, Amen.